This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Everyone is now aware that closing schools during the pandemic has left students far behind. But where have students suffered the most? What are the long-term costs of school closures and the pandemic at large? And how much has the current generation of young people suffered from the way in which the country has responded? What can be done about it? These are the questions Eric Hanushek, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, is answering in two recently released reports, one entitled The Economic Cost of the Pandemic and the other provocatively entitled A Simple and Complete Solution to the Learning Loss Problem. Well, I have Eric Hanushek with me on the Education Exchange today to elaborate on these themes. He's known to his friends as Rick, and I'll address him as such in our conversation. So, Rick, what's going on here in your report on the economic cost of the pandemic? You look at the performance of students on the National Assessment of Educational Progress as they performed in 2022 in math and reading. That's the nation's report card, as, as many people know. But how are you estimating learning loss from the 22 performance levels? That's just giving you the level of performance. Sure. Uh, and Paul, thanks for having me on uh, the Education Exchange. I always enjoy this. The basis for the estimation that I did and, and for the red flag that I hope to be flying about the uh, dangers that our economy faces um, come from tying together the NAEP scores, National Assessment of Educational Progress, for 2022 with what um, were observed in 2019 and before the pandemic. Now these are different students and and so forth. And so there's some concern that the students have changed and so forth. But the simplest way to estimate learning loss is just look at the difference in average scores for eighth graders in 2019 compared to eighth graders in 2022. And the numbers are really quite sobering. What we see is that uh, in math, the losses in performance over that time period erased 20 years of relatively steady, but it's uh, uh, not not too sharp, but 20 years of progress in the NAEP math performance. So that's that's a sizable amount, I guess. But but uh, a lot of people say six points, or you know, 20 percent of a standard deviation, or something like that. Uh, so can you can you be more concrete about uh, about it than just to say it's the loss of all the gains we've had over the last 20 years? Because a lot yeah, no, absolutely much in the last 20 years because compared to what students were doing previously. Yeah. You're, you're pointing out one of the problems with NAEP is that it always talks about, well, scores this year are 262 and last year they were 261 and nobody knows what any of those numbers mean or the difference means. And so what I tried to do was to um, relate that to economic performance, both for individuals and for the economy. What allows me to do this is that we have a lengthy 
uh, period of research on how achievement affects both individual earnings and uh, how achievement affects economic growth of nations. So we have a pretty good idea of what these mean. The simple answer uh, that drives all of this is uh, two observations. Observation one is that um, people who know more earn more on average. And so people who score higher on these achievement tests have been shown to earn considerably more. That is particularly true in the United States because you can look at uh, this relationship between achievement and economic outcomes of individuals across all the developed countries of the world, essentially. And the US rewards achievement more than almost every other country in the world. Okay, just stop there for one second. Why? Why does the United States reward performance on these tests much more? I, I, I think the, the answer is um, that would be obvious uh, when you sit in Silicon Valley. Uh, the U.S. is a very dynamic economy that's constantly changing. And one of the real values of more education is adaptability, ability to adjust to changes. So all the firms uh, from uh, retail stores to banks to um, high-tech firms are continually changing how they perform and what they do. This is, this is something that's long been said by economists, and I know you have said this before, but I'm hearing from people on the street, people that I meet even when I go on vacation, and they tell me that was once true, but it's not true anymore. People who, you don't really need to go on and get more education uh, because really the best jobs out there today are to be a plumber or an electrician or to, uh, there's plenty of, of jobs for ordinary working people. And that's actually the people who are in demand today. Well, first, uh, that's not the people in highest demand. The people in highest demand are the more highly skilled. But secondly, even those jobs change over time. Uh, we just had some renovation work done around our house. And the remarkable thing is that a carpenter no longer walks around with a hammer. He has a machine that in fact does all the nailing for him. And there are all these technological changes that exist even in what look like fairly routine jobs. How does reading and math in eighth grade have anything to do with how well you operate a, a hammering machine? Um, what what reading what performance of reading and math in eighth grade indicates is sort of an analytical ability, an ability to make decisions based upon some information that's presented to you. That's what the achievement tests do. But that's what people are required to do in all kinds of jobs. They have to make adjustments based upon what they see. Um, the electrician, um, who came to our house yesterday had to decide why certain set of circuits weren't working and had to make um, a lot of analytical decisions and inferences. Um, and that's what these math tests are uh, measuring. So, so you're saying that actually 
you've got data that shows there's a connection between how much you know in eighth grade and how much you're going to earn later in life. And if all the kids know more in eighth grade, the country as a whole is going to learn, is going to do a lot better economically. And that's especially true of the United States. Yeah, but it, there's two things. One is, let me just finish the first thought on what happens to individuals. And that is, I, I said that the U.S. rewards skills more than almost every other nation, a developed country in the world. Um, if you play that the other way, what that says is that the U.S. punishes the lack of skills more than almost every other country in the world. And if you don't have the skills, it has a bigger effect on your income in the U.S. than in almost every other country. And that's what plays into this learning loss story. Well, that's pretty important because a lot of students today seem to be dropping out at uh, age 16 or 17. We're seeing a decline in enrollments uh, in the post-pandemic era. And it, it seems to be that people are saying, look, I can go out and get a job now. I, I can start earning real money. I can learn on the job. I don't really need to go to school. Um, we, we should let, let's put a pin in that point and come back to that. I just wanted to, to add one other thing to clarify the impact of the learning losses, and then we'll come back to that. Um, the other thing that we know is that countries that have a higher skilled labor force grow faster than countries that have less skilled labor force. And what the learning loss means is that the skill level of our future labor force will be less than it would have been if we had not had a pandemic. The, the learning losses are, are, are not that people are, are stupider, that they've, they've actually declined. It's just that they don't get the skill levels that they had before the pandemic and maybe in the future if we get our schools back together. And so the, the big impact on the US economy is that this cohort of students as they now stand with less skills is gonna work its way through our labor force for the next 40 or 50 years. And over that time, it will, according to historical record, lower our growth rates. And that's a big deal because growth rates are what make um, a country better off, what increase the well-being over time. So that, that's the background here of being concerned about these learning losses. So if you were going to sum it up in a number, how, how big of an effect is it? Because we started with, you know, these numbers don't mean much, but now you're translating this into growth and the effect on people's wages and the economy. Mm -hmm. What do you see as how, how much of an effect is this gonna, is this gonna have? Well, the, the one of the studies that you mentioned um, tries to, provide the actual data on that. For the country as a whole, the average person in this cohort that's been affected by the pandemic, who was in schools K to 12 during the pandemic, is going to have 5.6% lower lifetime earnings than uh, that person would have before or after the pandemic. So for the average uh, US worker, that amounts to almost $70,000 of lost future wages. For the country as a whole, these effects on growth rates really add up 
And if we calculate the current value of lost uh, GDP, lost national income from these learning losses, we get a number that looks like $28 trillion. Now, nobody knows what a trillion dollars is, of course, but our total annual GDP is about $23 trillion today. So this is a loss of more than one year's total uh, production and output of the U.S. economy. And per person, that, that, that comes to 70,000, I think you said, right? 70,000 70, for each individual. For each individual. That's sort of something people can, can comprehend. I can comprehend that 70,000 uh, right. to have it. Uh, but now a lot of kids say, I can go out and earn 70,000 in a couple of years uh, if I just leave school now and start working. Well, you know, we don't know what's been happening, frankly. At, at, after the pandemic with school attendance. We know that the traditional public schools, particularly in large cities, have lost enrollment noticeably. We're a little bit less certain on where these students have gone, whether they are out of school altogether, whether they've gone to, to charter schools or private schools, whether they're doing homeschooling, whether they have little learning pods in their neighborhood and so forth. All of these are actually um, terribly important questions and they're not being answered yet with the data. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure all of these things are happening. It's not one thing that's happening out there, but lots of things are, are happening, but we don't really know how much of each is really uh, driving the numbers here. Well, going back to your um, original statement though, if they're dropping out because they can earn money, they could always do that um, in the past. And um, the wages are reasonably good, particularly they've been going up at the lower end, which is what these people will get when they're dropping out. It's a bad decision for a large number of these kids to drop out of school for today's gain because it's gonna cost them a lot in the future. So you're saying you can get a job now that looks pretty good to you as a teenager, but once you have to pay the bills and raise children, you're, it's going to take a lot more money than you can earn at the at the uh, at the local ice cream store, and uh, and and you're going to be stuck at the ice cream store over the long run. That's pre that's precisely the story um, that uh, has not changed. This is the story that exists for now for some time. Is that more education has in fact had a really good payoff in the labor market and in future well-being. Well, let's talk about the states because one of the things you do in your study is you look at each state and how much learning loss there is in each state. And there's considerable variation. I think Utah had the least learning loss and Delaware was one of the states that had the most. I think it's sort of ironic that the president of the United States comes from uh, the state that had the biggest learning loss. Uh, Maybe you can tell me why, uh, but I, I, actually one of the things about that analysis is I had a heck of a time trying to figure out why did some states have less learning loss than other states? That's the big question. Um, we don't have any good analysis of that. Um, people, for various reasons, want to pin it on how much how many days schools were closed or the quality of the internet connections or what have you. 
Um, we really don't have perfect information on that. The, the things that we do know are at not at the state level, but at the more local level. And that is that on average, in-person instruction was superior to hybrid instruction that had part in-person and part uh, remote. And that was superior to fully remote instruction. So that um, some of our school systems uh, made, I thought, bad choices of staying closed for all of the um, 2021 school year. Um, but I don't think the, the story we should concentrate on is um, blaming this or that school district or politician for making bad choices. What we should focus on is, can we do anything about this? Because these losses are by all historical record going to be permanent unless we actually make the schools better than they were in March of 2020. Well, let's hold, hold that thought for just a second because that, that is an important point. But before we get there, let me just ask you about this oddity in California. The Los Angeles school system actually showed, uh, I think, less, fewer losses, maybe even no losses yeah. uh, than other cities or, or states out there. And, and yet, I think LA schools were closed through most of the pandemic. Yeah, they were they were closed. And so that's why I say it's a very complicated story of what happened and uh, what caused these losses. And um, it's not going to be easy to ferret that out from the data because we don't have good data that allows us to get all that information. So we have very crude information. There's crude information that comes along with the NAEP data from surveys, but it's not very useful to try to uh, infer what policies we should take um, or to assess blame. Um, yeah, so, so that's sort of is, you're just sort of saying, we don't know much about exactly why the pandemic had different effects in different places, but we do have good information about how to do something about it. And so let's talk about that for a bit. You're saying that the really key thing is to improve the quality of the teaching force. I think that's what I read in um, this report you've written. That, that would be certainly you my solution. Select that out. Yeah. Um, that, that would be my solution. I, um, uh, and I should mention that this is not a, a popular solution in terms of observing what school districts are doing. Um, school districts today are trying uh, to get back to where they were before the pandemic began. Um, and, you know, some are making good progress and others are struggling to even get back to where they were. But the general uh, most frequent kinds of solutions that's been put in place is to essentially do more of what we did in the past. Um, lengthen the school day, have voluntary extra days or um, what uh, people have been touting as high dosage tutoring. We have some experience with these uh, different uh, interventions that follow what we did in the past, but the general story is that they are not sufficient to make up for the size of the learning losses that we've seen. 
as we look around that even if perfectly implemented, they might not succeed, but it's hard to implement them right. For example, over the holiday period, uh, Los Angeles schools offered two days of voluntary extra instruction. They had, as best I can tell from the reports, pretty low attendance at these. And it's not clear what that does because these kids are gonna go back to class with a larger proportion of kids that have not had this extra time and whether the teachers can handle this higher variance that they're necessarily seeing is an open question. Well, there's a lot of talk about summer, using the summer as a catch-up time. So if, if kids lost schooling because they weren't going to school, why not have them go to school, you know, through the summer to, to, to catch up? Why, why isn't that gonna? Well, the, the, most of the data on what can be accomplished by that, particularly if they're voluntary programs, would not suggest that we're going to make up for the broad losses that we've uh, uh, seen. Um, most of the voluntary programs are uh, picked up by people who are ahead in the first place. The more advantaged kids who are performing better also are more likely to go into the voluntary programs. And it's going to, in fact, exacerbate the cleavage as we've seen, the achievement uh, differences. I mean, one of the things that we didn't mention, we were talking about all these average losses and so forth. There's pretty uh, convincing evidence and stories that the losses were much larger for disadvantaged populations than they were for advantaged populations. Disadvantaged students often had parents who were uh, workers that had to be out of the home that were not as adept perhaps at providing actual instruction to their kids as more advantaged, better educated parents. And they didn't have the wherewithal or the ability to seek out other ways to supplement the education of their kids. So one of the things that's happened is that we've uh, just expanded the variation in performance that we've always had, but made it worse. And so teachers are faced with a much more difficult situation today. They're faced with classes that have um, students that are multiple grades different in terms of what, what their knowledge level is. And you could have three and four, maybe five years difference in the uh, effective grade level of students coming into a given class. Did, uh, I didn't see that um, breakout by level of disadvantage in your report. Uh, did you take a look at that to see whether there's variation among the states and how well they did with the more disadvantaged students or by ethnic group? No, they, they, um, what I did was to focus more on the state differences. And as you point out, there were substantial state differences. Utah um, in math did a lot better than Delaware and Oklahoma. And if you just look at what that means for the individual students in their lifetime earnings, it, the difference is 3% uh, loss in lifetime earnings for people on average who were in Utah 
during this period. And it means a 9% loss on average for people that were being educated in Delaware and Oklahoma. So it's, um, uh, you know, the state differences, I think, are going to be very important. Well, so if we're going to have more effective teachers and they can make the difference, how are we going to do that? Well, I think actually uh, right now uh, there is a straightforward way to do that. Um, uh, I have focused on the effectiveness of teachers because in all of the research over the last uh, decades, the one thing that stands out in terms of affecting student performance is the effectiveness of the teacher. And we've seen very large differences. Um, it's, it's not a surprise. I mean, if there's no parent in the country that doesn't recognize that some teachers are more effective than other teachers. Um, and there's lots of parents who work very hard to try to make sure that their, their children get into the classes with the effective teachers. Um, here we are in, uh, uh, Sort of trying to get through the pandemic, the federal government put a lot of money into education and sent a lot of money to school districts, much of which hasn't been spent. What's been spent has been focused more on things like new air conditioning systems and, and uh, changes in the capital stock, the, the physical facilities, um, and much less has gone into actual trying to ameliorate these learning losses. But today, many school districts in the country are just sitting on a pot of federal money that they haven't spent yet, in part because they're not sure what they could do uh, to make that most useful. Take that federal money that they have and provide incentives to the most effective teachers or the more effective teachers to take on a few more kids. So allow the uh, better teachers to have larger classes of students. Um, and then the other pot of amount of money that you have left over after you provide these incentives to the better teachers, you can use to buy out the contracts of the least effective teachers. If you did something like that, which is obviously a very radical change, from normal behavior, um, if you did something like that, you could immediately make the schools better than they were before March of 2020 and better in the future if you continue that. Well, but the unions are very much opposed to both those ideas. They do not want to have pay some teachers more money than other teachers, and they don't want to have an evaluation system put in place that would allow you to identify the more effective teachers as compared to the less effective. I mean, this was tried in Washington, D.C. with, a, you know, pretty positive effects uh, over the last decade, but it's never been copied or very seldom been copied anywhere else. And where it's been copied, they've dropped it. So it's really about the most controversial innovation out there. Well, you put your thumb on exactly the problem. Um, by the way, D Dallas, Texas is one place that has effectively done something similar to Washington, D.C., not precisely the same, but it looks like it is also successful. Um, my hope is that people understand that 
$70,000 average loss to students, that $28 trillion lost to the total economy and amounts to that follow that across the states are sufficient to get them to think of different things. Because we know if we just get back to the schools we had, which we're struggling to do, that we will leave these as permanent losses that will be faced by this cohort of students and by the nation. So the hope is that the unions see that it's in their interest also to get the uh, achievement and performance and learning of students up to par and moving forward. Um, it's, a, it's an uphill struggle, of course, but lots of parents recognize that their kids suffered during this period. I mean, they were looking over the shoulders of kids while they were taking classes and um, some were thrilled by what they saw and some were less thrilled. And uh, a number of them left the traditional public schools. That's, those are the data that we just talked about. A number of them left the traditional public schools because they were desperately looking for some way to make sure that their kids, in fact, uh, came out ahead in this whole period. Well, it, it, you know, when I look out there as to what school districts are actually doing with the federal money that's available, apart from the air conditioning, when they actually get around to looking at how to get to improve student performance directly, I see tutoring out there. I see talk about smaller classes. I see, uh, you know, uh, after school or summer vacation and all those kinds of things are on the table and being discussed and actually being implemented in some place. But I don't see anybody taking the steps that you're, as you're suggesting here. Let's pay the good teachers more money and let's identify who those good teachers are and let's weed out the weak teachers. Now, one reason why they may not be doing that is because there's a teacher shortage, or at least I'm told there's a teacher shortage out there, and you couldn't replace uh, an ineffective teacher with a better teacher because there's just not enough teachers to go around right now. This is a this is a country that's in a short labor supply situation. I, am I mistold when I when I read this information? It's coming. From I think you are. I think in part you are mistold because. We've been talking about teacher shortages um, for as long as I've studied education, there have been teacher shortages. And this has been used by the unions to argue that, well, the first thing we have to do is get everybody's salary up and then we can worry about all the details. Um, but in fact, um, if we just raise everybody's salary, say through the pandemic, we are unlikely to get any gains in student performance. We're likely to have happier teachers uh, over the time, but we're not going to get any gains because the ineffective teachers are paid more just the same way as the effective teachers. So the shortages that we see um, have been identified for some time. One of my favorite books in my uh, collection of books on education is a uh, a 1962 study by Kershaw and McKean uh, called, um, I, I get the title wrong, I think it's Teacher Salaries and Teacher Shortages or Teacher Shortages and Teacher Salaries. 
that talked about the fact that there were shortages of math teachers in 1962. And it was partly the fact that we paid everybody the same, whether they're, they were in demand like math teachers who could get jobs elsewhere, or whether they were PE teachers who were not as in heavy demand. And um, you end up either underpaying the math teachers or overpaying the PE teachers when you pay the same. And so the, um, this is a problem. In fact, what you're pointing out is um, something that some people are saying but not acting on. We thought that we had to fix our schools or improve our schools before the pandemic. And what the pandemic has done is just underscore the fact that we've got a longer way to go. But it's not that getting back to March of 2020 is the goal we should have because our schools have not performed up to the level of many other uh, developed countries' schools. Well, Rick, there's a lot of interesting stuff on the table and just a lot of fascinating material in your two reports. And I do hope that our audience uh, goes to the Hoover website to, uh, to find your report uh, on uh, the uh, law, learning loss that occurred during uh, the pandemic. So uh, thank you very much, Rick, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thanks for our always interesting discussion. I've been speaking with Eric Hanyashek, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's the author of two new reports on the impact of learning loss and what to do about it. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me on the Ednex website when a new podcast is released. Thank you. <laughs>